Well, David Helm is a world-class theologian and philosopher who tells the story of a Vietnam soldier who returned to his hometown after the war. He recalled how as a child he saw this soldier spending a lot of time by a riverbank tending to a flock of ducks. And one day he asked his dad, why does, why does that man care for ducks the way that he does? And his father went on to tell him this soldier's story, saying, well, when he was in Vietnam, it was a group of ducks that saved his life. One day his troop was ambushed and all of his friends were shot. And although he wasn't shot, he laid down in the marsh and pretended as though he had. And the opposing forces just kind of walked through the area, putting one final bullet in every body that they came across. But just before they reached his, a flock of ducks flew overhead diverting the soldiers' attention so that they turned and they began to shoot at the ducks and then followed the ducks in the direction in which they were flying. And they never returned back to where they were, and so the soldier was able to get up and he survived. He cares for the ducks because, in many ways, those, it was ducks that saved him in that moment. And then he looked at his son and he said, Son, that man loves because he lives. Well, a very similar concept is being communicated to us in today's passage. If you have your Bibles, grab those out, turn them open to 1 Peter, and find your way to the end of chapter 1. Because in a very real sense, Peter is saying to us, and God is speaking to us in this moment, that as Christians, we love because we live. We love because of the life we have been given as a result of our faith in Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection. That as Christians, we love because we live. This is essentially the concept that is communicated in this passage. If you look at verse 22, we read again, Since you have purified yourselves by your obedience to the truth. Another way of saying that, since you have taken the gospel in and you are trusting in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, so that you show sincere brotherly love for each other. From a pure heart, love one another constantly. Because you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. The result of taking the gospel in by faith and having been born again by the Spirit through the imperishable word of God is that we now give ourselves over in love. We give ourselves over in showing genuine care and genuine concern for those around us, particularly those who are in the church who make up the family of God. Jesus would teach this dynamic to Peter and the rest of the disciples one day when he said, I give you a new command, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. And then he goes on to say, and this is how the world is going to know that you belong to me. He said, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And so Peter, having been taught that by Jesus, now carries that command into the life of this diverse network of churches that were littered throughout Asia Minor. And, and by extension, the Holy Spirit is taking that command and carrying it into the life of our diverse church today as well. That we are to love one another as family. Perhaps you've seen the classic movie, Remember the Titans. It's an incredible film that tells the story of racial integration at T.C. Williams High School. And the drama unfolds within the context of a football team, a football team that is being led by a new black coach played by the man, Denzel Washington. And, and at first, the racial tensions are high. The white players and the black 
players distrust each other. They are fighting against each other until one day the coach decides to take them to football camp. And they go off together. And what they experience there together change things. Their shared experience turned them into a type of family. So much so that when you get to the end of the movie, there's a guy named Gary who's one of the white leaders on the team. He's in the hospital having suffered in a car wreck. And and another player named Julius, one of the black leaders on the team, he comes to visit him. And when he shows up at the hospital, Gary's mom says to Julius, he only wants to see you. And so Julius proceeds to go into the room when a nurse stops him and says, no, only kin, only family are allowed in here. And then Gary speaks up from his bed and says, Alice, don't you see the family resemblance? That's my brother. And he goes on to say, when all of this is over, he and I are going to move into the same neighborhood together. Well, Christian, do you understand that it is our shared experience of the gospel that turns us into family? Despite our racial, social, cultural, political, economical differences, despite all of that, we are to love one another with a brotherly, that is to say a familial love, because the gospel makes us family. And as we journey through the world that is and root to the world that is to come, we love one another as family, giving this world a taste of that world, because one day you and I are going to move into the same neighborhood together. One day we are going to occupy the new heavens and the new earth, enjoying one another and enjoying Jesus forever and always. And until that day comes, we love now in such a way that gives everyone in this world a taste of that world. But the question is, what kind of love are we talking about? What is the nature of the love that is to flow among us? How is the family of God to love one another? Well, to answer that question, you and I cannot look to the world around us to figure that out. We cannot look to the world around us to figure out the kind of love that should flow among us because the world that is doesn't know this kind of love. The world that is applies the word love to all sorts of things, ranging from spouses to sports teams. The world that is has a tendency to define love according to slippery concepts, Slippery concepts like tolerance or acceptance or affirmation. These slippery concepts that keep you and I from getting a grip and knowing how we are to intervene in love for another person who is falling short of the glory for which they were created. You see, love in the world that is just wants to kind of keep the appearance of peace and not cause any ripples in the water, not cause any disruption to the social status and the the social standing that we are apparently and seemingly enjoying. You see, the world that is, is marked by the kind of love that only grants permission and never offers any type of prohibition. It's a laneless, borderless existence. And so we consider that because when love is defined in those ways, when love is acted out in that capacity, understand that it is not really love at all because that understanding of love is ultimately self-serving. But the love that we're talking about in the gospel, the love that should mark out the family of God, isn't a self-serving kind of love. It is an other-oriented kind of love. And so rather than looking to the world around us to define love for us, we look to the God above us. We consider who God is and what God has done for us 
in Christ. Earlier in verse 16, we read that we are to be holy as God is holy. Now, when it comes to holiness, understand that holiness is the most common descriptor of God that we have in the Bible. And when we think about God as holy, do not consider his holiness as just one piece of the divine attribute pie. So that holiness sits next to righteousness. Holiness sits next to love. Holiness sits next to faithfulness. Holiness isn't just another piece in the divine attribute pie. Holiness is actually the pan in which all of those attributes bakes in. All of those attributes bake in the pan of holiness. Holiness, in other words, is the summary designation of everything that God is in contrast with everything that is in the world that is. It's the summary designation of all that God is in contrast with everything else. So when we talk about God being loving, understand that his love bakes in the pan of his holiness. So his love is a holy love. His love is a different sort of love because God is holy. He is a different sort of being. And we are called to be holy as he is holy. We are called to be different sorts of people. And as God is loving, therefore, we are to be loving. We define and understand what it means to love according to the holiness of God, according to the character of God, according to the love of God. It's this holy love that helps account for the fact that you and I are strangers and exiles, that we are to be sinners of a different sort. This holy love that we should have for each other is God, is to be God-like and godly. Peter's pal John helps us understand this when he's describing the nature of this love. He says in 1 John, uh, what he wrote, that God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we also must love one another. But in what way has God loved us? Well, he has loved us in a self-giving, sacrificial way. A self-giving, sacrificial way whereby he sought our eternal well-being. Whereby he sought our eternal upbuilding. And so when we talk about what it means to love one another, we are talking about loving each other in a self-giving, sacrificial way that seeks the eternal well-being and upbuilding of those around us. But there's an adverb in verse 22 that, that makes this challenging. It makes this command very difficult to carry out. Peter writes that we are to love each other. Here it is, constantly. Now, the thought of loving each other in that way constantly wears me out. That I'm to seek the well-being and the upbuilding of everyone around me all the time? How, how am I supposed to keep up that kind of pace? I don't feel like I can keep up that pace. Well, left to myself, I can't. And left to yourself, you can't. The nature of love that is commanded of us as Christians is the weight of it is too, hair, too heavy for any one of us to carry on our own. We cannot do this unless a couple of conditions are met, unless some things begin to change. And this is what Peter is cueing us into. He heard the command that Jesus gave him in John 13. And then he witnessed 
Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection, and he was soon filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and so when he carries this command over into the life of the church, he nestles it within the context of the gospel and the realities of having been born again by the Spirit, this condition that must be met if we're going to obey this command. So he says that we are to be born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, imperishable seed through the living and enduring word of God. We, in other words, you can't do this unless you are a converted Christian. You can't do this unless you have taken the gospel in and are filled with the Holy Spirit. Just think about the metaphor there. He uses the metaphor of a seed. Now, seeds produce the kind of fruit that corresponds with their nature. So an apple seed, you plant it into the ground, it's going to produce a tree that bears apples. Uh, if you plant an apple seed, but instead of apples, you get cucumbers, you're not dealing with an apple seed. You're dealing with something else. You probably have some type of genetically modified organism that you should be wary of because seeds bear the kind of fruit that correspond with its nature. Well, when a person becomes a Christian, God plants the seed of his word within them. The gospel is taken in by them. And it produces the kind of fruit that corresponds with its nature. And, and the nature of God's word is enduring. The nature of God's word is constant. The nature of God's word is eternal. If you look at verse 24, Peter quotes Isaiah 40, which is a passage that contrasts the enduring nature of God's word with the fleeting nature of everything else. Listen to what he says. All flesh is like grass and all its glory like a flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures. It lasts forever. Then he clarifies, and this word is the gospel that was proclaimed to you. That the gospel endures forever. That's its nature. It is inherently eternal. It is the only reality that's going to last forever. And it is in, it's its enduring nature that gives hope to you and to me to be able to love one another constantly. That this seed has been planted within us and this seed bears the kind of fruit that corresponds with its nature. That this seed begins to change us in ways that cause us to love one another constantly. That we would give of ourselves to others to show genuine care and genuine concern for them. That we devote our time, our energy, our efforts towards loving people and loving one another. But the condition that is laid out here is a condition of being born again, that apart from being born again, apart from the gospel, you and I do not stand a chance at carrying out this command. In fact, this command will only crush us. It will not uh, help us in any discernible way apart from Christ. This is why as Christians, we're not just a moral people. We are a gospel people. We don't just look at Jesus as an example to us because his example is far higher than the, anything we can carry out in and of ourselves. We, we don't look to him as our example. We look to him as our savior. We don't seek to follow his principles. We seek to abide in his person. And as we abide in him and he abides in us, he's energizing the life of the word that he has put within us. The gospel realities that, are, that bear, that are capable of bearing the kind of fruit and the love that is called for in this text a love that is self-giving, a love that is sacrificial, a love that seeks 
the well-being and upbuilding of others and doing that constantly. That's the fruit of this seed. That's the fruit of the gospel that has been planted within us. Richard Niebuhr once described this kind of love this way. I love this description. Listen to what he says. He said that love is loyalty. It is the willingness to, to let the self be destroyed rather than the other cease to be. It is the commitment of the self by self-binding will to make the other great. Do you understand that that's how Jesus loved us? He was willing to be destroyed so that we would not cease to be. He bound himself to the cross unto death in order to make you and I great, in order to make us new, in order to make us loving. This is the nature of love that now flows among us. And apart from the condition of being born again, apart from the condition of being a Christian, we cannot do this. And so if you are not yet a Christian, you haven't taken the gospel in, you have not been born again by the Spirit, I pray that this would be the moment in which you are. That you would put your faith in Jesus and that his Spirit would fill you up and give you a new heart with new affections that have the inherent ability to make you a loving person, to make you a godly person to make you a part of the family of God so that you can join us in loving one another constantly so that we might make Jesus known to the world around us, giving this world a taste of the world that is to come. But there's more in the passage because this command to love one another constantly, it is so challenging that as you keep reading, you find that it's not enough to be born again, that that's not the only condition that is needed if we're going to love each other. More is required. It's not enough to be born again and become Christians. He goes on to say that we must now grow up as Christians. We must mature in our faith. We must be sanctified. We must be, become practically holy so that we can love the way that Jesus loves us. Notice verse 1 of chapter 2. He writes, Therefore, in light of the fact that you've been born again, in light of the fact of this command to, to love one another constantly, Rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the word, so that you may grow up into your salvation if you have tasted that the Lord is good. Not only do you need the condition of becoming a Christian and being born again, you need the condition of, of maturing, of growing up. And ordinarily, as we grow up in life, we get rid of some things. There was a point in my life when I got rid of a crib, because to sleep in the crib would have hindered my growth. To sleep in a crib would have cramped my ability to, to get a good night's sleep as my body was getting too big for it. And, and if I wasn't able to get the sleep my body required, I would not grow and I would not become healthy. There was a time in my life when I got rid of diapers. Because if I was still wearing diapers, it would hinder my ability to function in society in a healthy manner. There was a time in my life when I got rid of my hobby horse and my G.I. Joe action figures, believing that it would be unhealthy for me to kind of live in a suspended infantile state or to extend my adolescence into adulthood. So there were things I got rid of because my growth required that I do so. We hear Peter is saying, if you're going to grow up as a Christian, if you're going to mature in your faith, there are some things you must get rid of. If love is going to flow among you as God desires, there are things you must check. There are things that you must 
throw in the trash can and get rid of because these things hinder love from flowing among you. And he goes on to identify five vices, five obstacles, five hindrances to love in our lives. The first one is malice. And he's saying, get rid of malice. Malice means to possess an ill will towards another person, towards another brother or sister in Christ. Malice is a malignant attitude that when it goes unchecked, it only grows and intensifies, and eventually it's going to culminate in doing harm to another person, whether that's verbal harm or even physical harm. That's where malice leads. And evidence of malice in our hearts, especially towards one another in the, the church, evidence of it happens when, when we are happy when another person is miserable. Or when they are happy, we become miserable. That is a sure sign of malice residing in our hearts. We, don't, we do not rejoice with those who rejoice. We, we get mad when other people are happy because that's the fruit of malice. So if another Christian gets, gets fired from their job and we have malice towards them, we, we're secretly kind of smiling that that has happened to them. Or they get promoted secretly. We are upset that that happened to them because there's malice within us towards them and love is not flowing as it ought. But then the second vice is deceit, is dishonest, a, a subtle skewing of facts. Relationally, deceit is used when we align details to, to shade people a certain way or to uh, cause people to be viewed in the worst possible light. That's what deceit does. But then he goes on and says, hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is a, is a word that pops up 27 times in the New Testament. It is something that should be resisted and something we must get rid of if we're going to engage a community in love, if we're going to love one another as family. Hypocrisy can't be a part of it. This word is taken from the ancient theater. Back in the day when plays were done, they weren't done by large casts of people who could play a bunch of, who were different characters were played by different actors. Instead, you had small casts. And so if you had a play that required a bunch of Characters, the actors would wear different masks depending on who they were representing in that moment. And so as they were one character, they'd wear, they'd wear one mask. And then when they needed to depict another character, they would just change masks. That's where the word hypocrisy comes from. As these actors were pretending to be different people, that's what hypocrisy is. Hypocrisy is pretending. Hypocrisy is wearing a mask. Hypocrisy is, is pretending to be someone you're not. It's being different people in different social settings. When I'm around my church friends, I'm lifting up my hands and worshiping Jesus. When I'm around my non-church friends, I'm, I'm lifting my hands in praise of whatever they are praising and doing whatever they are doing, even if it is out of line with the character of God and the love that we are called to show. And you know hypocrisy is poisoning your relationships when you hesitate to allow one group of people that you're familiar with to interact with another group of people in your life. And you're afraid of them ever coming into contact with one another because you are, different, you are a different person when you are around them. And you're a different per person when you are around them. You're pretending in those environments, and that's what makes you a hypocrite. See, sometimes hypocrisy is associated with being inconsistent. Well, I'm a hypocrite because I'm an inconsistent Christian. But understand that Peter was inconsistent. And it is Peter that is telling us in this moment to get rid of a hypocrisy. And so I don't think hypocrisy is synonymous with being an inconsistent Christian. Just think about Peter's life. There was a time when he denied, Jesus, denied knowing Jesus three times. There was a time when 
Peter pulled back from fellowshipping with Gentile Christians because some Jewish Christians entered the room. And in love, Paul stepped up and called him out saying, look, what you're doing is unnatural. What you're doing is not true to the nature of the gospel that has been planted within you. So you need to repent. You need to come back. And he called him out on it. No, Peter wasn't a hypocrite. Peter was, though he was inconsistent. He was a Christian who was growing up. And as we grow up, we experience growing pains. As we grow up, our voice cracks, our muscles ache, our bones stretch. And and so there's tension there. And so there's a difference in being a genuine Christian who's, who's progressing in their faith, who is growing up and stumbling and bumbling along the way, and being a hypocrite. So when you think about hypocrisy, don't think about Peter, think about Judas. Judas was the hypocrite. He was the one pretending to be someone he wasn't. When he was around the disciples and with Jesus, he pretended to love Jesus. But when he was around other people and he was separated from Jesus, he pretended, or he didn't pretend, he plotted against Jesus. Judas was a hypocrite because he was a pretender. There's a difference between being a pretender and being an inconsistent yet genuine follower of Jesus. But then the fourth one there is envy. This idea of jealousy, of coveting, of wanting what other people have that you don't have, of being made miserable by other people's pleasures, being made miserable by other people's apparent prosperity. And this insidious sin within us, it is exacerbated the more time we spend on social media and we see what everybody else has and we see what everyone else is doing and we become envious of it and we start wishing and silently hoping harm to fall upon them that what they have would be taken away from them until we are able to get something like it. Envy is one of the seven deadly sins for a reason. But if you look at the seven deadly sins, envy is the one sin in that list that comes with no pleasure at all. There's no pleasure to be had in being envy. Envy only makes us miserable. It hinders love from flowing among us. But then the fifth and final one is slander. Slander is wanting to make yourself look or feel better by making someone else look or feel worse. And so let me ask, how do you talk about people who aren't a part of the conversation? How do you talk about a person who isn't present in the group circle? Do you talk about them in such a way that's designed and calculated to cause them to fall down a few notches in the eyes of those you're talking with? So that perhaps you can be elevated in their eyes. If so, that is slander. And if so, that hinders love from flowing among us. That is not loving. It is hateful. And it's something that we must get rid of. It is something that we must check. And so I'd encourage you in this moment to take a look at this list and examine your heart. And if any of them are found there, would you take some time to confess that and to repent of it and to allow the gospel of God's grace to cleanse you, to make you new, to refresh your spirit and to fill you up with his love. If that is the case, welcome the grace of conviction. And if God leads you in that conviction to go and to confess your sin to another person, I would encourage you to do so. Give a phone call, hop on a Zoom meeting, interact with a person that you've been struggling to love and confess your sin. I assure you that as you do so, you will find love being freed up between you and love flowing more intensely than perhaps it ever has before. And so if we're going to grow up in our salvation, there are some things we've got to get rid of. There are some things we've got to get out of our lives, anything that hinders love from flowing. But on the other hand, there's something that we need to get into our lives. 
There's stuff we got to get out, and there's something we got to get in. And what Peter would go on to say is that we need to get in, we need to get the word into us. We need to feast on the soul-enriching sustenance of God's word. Peter goes on to, to use a metaphor of a newborn's nutrition. And he says, as our bodies need food, our souls need food. Just as we need physical nutrition to grow, and not just any nutrition, we need healthy nutrition to grow healthy. We need spiritual nutrition, healthy spiritual nutrition in order to grow up, in order to mature in our faith. And Peter says, look, and the source of that sustenance, the source of your health as a Christian is the word. This is why biblical teaching and preaching in the life of the church is so important. This is why it's so significant for us to get into the word because we need the word to get into us. We need to feast. We need to feed. We need the word, gospel realities to nourish us. You've heard the statement, we are what we eat. And that is true physically, but there's a sense in which that is true spiritually as well. If you and I feast mentally, emotionally, and spiritually on everything but the gospel realities contained in the scriptures... We're not going to be healthy. We're not going to grow. We're going to be immature. We're going to extend our adolescence. We're going to be stuck in an infantile state, which is not where we belong. Let me give you an example. If your mental, emotional, and spiritual diet consists more of reality TV than it does of gospel realities, what do you think is going to sprout in your soul? What type of fruit is going to come of that? Well, reality TV, it just highlights relational dysfunction, right? The relationships on a reality TV show are never marked by sacrificial, self-giving love that seeks the well-being and the upbuilding of others. No, those relationships tend to be marked by what? Well, they tend to be marked by malice and deceit, by hypocrisy, by envy, by slander, that that. It's what people feast on. They enjoy seeing that type of dysfunction played out before them, but a steady diet of that is going to produce that within us. A steady diet of that stuff is going to produce that stuff in our lives, and over time, we're, and over time we will become what we eat because we're eating on that rather than eating and feasting on God's word, eating and feasting on gospel realities. Peter's reminding us that the that the gospel communicated in and through the scriptures, that is given to us as our daily bread. It is the food that our souls need. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, Jesus said, It is written, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. That as newborn baby desires its mother's milk, we are to desire the love-generating word of the Lord. And as we feast on the scriptures, we get into the word. The word gets into us, and it causes love to grow. It energizes the love that we are to show for one another in the family of God. And if love is lacking, chances are we've been feasting on the wrong stuff. We've been eating the wrong diet. But notice the connection that happens between reading the word and tasting that the Lord is good. I love this dynamic. Peter quotes Psalm 34, verse 18. Psalm 34 is a psalm that Peter really likes. He's going to come back to it in 1 Peter chapter 3. But what he's reminding us here is of the supernatural nature of the Bible, that the Bible is unlike any book. The Bible is unlike any book that 
It's the only book that you and I can read, and as we read it, the author meets with us. As we read the scriptures, a, an encounter with the Lord is being facilitated, is being cultivated. We read the scriptures, and God discloses himself to us. The Spirit accompanies us so that we can taste again and again and again just how good the Lord is, so that we can be reminded of the gospel realities that have transformed our lives that account for who we are and where we're going as we journey through the world that is en route to the world that is to come. And so if you've been feasting on something other than the scriptures mentally, emotionally, and spiritually during this season, then repent of that and come back to the scriptures. Change your diet. Get into the word so the word can get into you. Now, anytime we try to make a change to our diet, understand that the benefits of those changes takes time to show up. It takes time to see the effects of a healthier diet. There's no quick fix. There's no quick way to get healthy. And so we have to commit to the long game. We have to commit for the long haul, trusting that the enduring quality of the Lord will help us persevere and endure as we do so. So if we're going to have lasting, healthy growth in our lives, we must be committed. You know, keto is a quick is a quick fix. You can see some changes if you were to engage in a keto diet, but it's hard for me to see how that diet is sustainable. And, and studies show that it might not even be a preferable way for you to live the rest of your life. And so you don't want the quick fix. You want a balanced fix. You want a responsible fix. You want a, a diet that can be sustained over the course of your life. And this is what the scriptures have been given to us to provide. The gospel realities communicated the word Renew us and energize us over time. Let me give you one final analogy as I close. That if we're going to love one another in sacrificial, self-giving ways, if we're going to seek one another's well-being and upbuilding constantly, on one hand, we need to be born again. We must be Christians. On the other hand, we need to grow up as Christians. We need to mature in our faith. We need to grow by getting rid of stuff that hinders love, and we need to grow by getting into the Word and allow the Word to get into us. And as we get into the Word and the Word gets into us, understand that the Word serves like a renewable energy resource. It's like renewable energy compared to solar or wind power. You know, renewable energy is practically inexhaustible. It seems as though they provide inexhaustible resources. That's why people spend so much time and energy and money uh, trying to harness renewable energies. But a renewable energy, although it's practically inexhaustible as a resource, it, it is limited in the amount of energy that it is able to give in a given stretch. And so they have to be replenished. But the thing about renewable energy is that renewable energy is naturally replenishing. It replenishes itself, so to speak, so that the sun shines every day, so that natural energy, that renewable energy can restore itself. Wind is going to blow again. This is why they're so appealing, and because they are practically inexhaustible, but there's a limitation to, its, to the duration in which it supplies energy. Well, as we journey through the world that is, and we feast on the word, and we are growing in gospel realities, the scriptures serve our souls like, a re like renewable energy. Its love-enhancing power is inexhaustible, but 
There are limits to the amount of energy it provides for a given stretch. This is why you don't just read the Bible one time. You don't just taste and see that the Lord is good once. You read and you keep reading. You taste and see that the Lord is good and you keep tasting. You believe the gospel and you keep believing. This is why we never grow beyond our need for the gospel as we journey through the world that is. We come back to it over and over and over and over again. The gospel and the love it generates is inexhaustible. But as it serves our lives, as we journey through the world it is, the duration of energy that it provides is limited. And that is by design so that you and I might over time lean in to our relationship with Jesus, that we might rely upon Jesus, that we would depend upon God's word, that we would feast on it daily because we need its sustenance daily. And so we keep coming back to it over and over and over again. If love is lacking in your life, if love is not flowing among you, get back to the word. Come back to the gospel. Taste and see that the Lord is good. But don't just come back today. And don't just come back tomorrow. Come back again and again and again and again as the gospel and God's word serves our soul like renewable energy. It is inexhaustible in the love that it has for us. But there's a duration, there's a limit to how long it energizes us. So it's designed by God for you and I to keep coming back to it, to keep feasting, to keep feeding, to keep leaning in to this new life that we have with Jesus. Keep leaning in to the new community that Jesus has made us to be so that we live and love as family, journeying through the world that is and route to the world that is to come. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your gospel. We thank you for your spirit who has caused us to come alive through the imperishable word that you have given to us. God, we pray to grow. We pray for love to flow among us. We pray to be self-giving, sacrificial people. We pray to be those who seek the eternal well-being and the upbuilding of those around us and to do that constantly. But God, we confess that we are unable to do that on our own, that we need all that you supply. We need the resources that you have given to us to carry out the commands that you make of us. And so God, would you please empower us? Would you please enable us? Would you please nourish us so that we might grow up in our salvation? And we might be loving people. That we might be a loving family that causes the world to take notice as they see us loving differently. And I pray that they would be attracted to the beauty of your son and the love that you have for them through the love that we show each other. God, I ask and I pray this all now in Jesus' name.